Good morning. <clears throat> I will be reading Acts 20, chapter 26, verses 4 through 8. <clears throat> the Jews all know the way I have lived ever since I was a child, from the be beginning of my life in my own country and also in Jerusalem. They have known me for a long time and can testify, if they are willing, that according to the strictest sect of our religion, I lived as a Pharisee. And now it is because of my hope and what God has promised our fathers that I am on trial today. This is the promise our 12 tribes are hoping to see fulfilled as they earnestly serve God day and night. O King, it is because of this hope that the Jews are accusing me. Why should any of you consider it incredible that God raises the dead? And the whole church said... The amazing thing is that Paul is not talking about a hope that has its foundation in Jesus Christ. He will, before that um, time is done, before that sermon is done, he will come to the fact that the resurrection of all is affirmed in the resurrection of Jesus. But he's talking about the hope of the Jews. The hope of 1,500 years approximately of people who have been born from Abraham as father and grandfather and so on and so on. A hope that pointed towards the coming of Jesus, but a hope that stood without knowing what the Messiah would look like, that he was coming. And where, one has to ask, where is that hope coming from? What is its foundation? Where does it stand? The story that the Jews told over and over. A story that came up in a feast over and over and over and over again. For however many generations there were from that time to the present, it was the story of the Passover. The Passover feast was inaugurated as this moment in time when every year all of the people... And this was not just all of the people who were in Jerusalem, but it seems that wherever God's people were, they would stop. And even if they didn't have the opportunity to take that lamb to the temple, they stopped and said, we have to remember what God did. We have to remember that there is a real story of a real people who had been gone to Egypt as, as free men, but who had begun to threaten Pharaoh. The text tells us that it, in reality, they were fulfilling the first command that God gave all humanity. Be fruitful and multiply. And guess what? Those Hebrews were being fruitful and multiply. They became so large that it threatened Pharaoh. And he set them to hard labor. We call it slavery. The, that didn't stop the, the continued multiplying of the people. And so he did one of, we have to say, one of the most heinous things that any ruler, any, anyone who had responsibility for slaves has ever done. He took the, the males, male children, took them and cast them in the river. He didn't cast them in the river so that they could wash up on the shore somewhere else. He cast them in the river so that they would die. He heard the cry of those people. 
Again, he heard the physical cry of a real group of people in a real geographic place in a specific historical time. He heard their cry and he said, I'll save them. I'm going to bring them out. I'm going to change their fortunes. When they celebrated the Passover, the particular um, thing that was being remembered was the way in which they painted the blood on the post of the house and the angel of death would, quote, pass over that home as he brought retribution for what Pharaoh had done willingly and now is done unwillingly. And yet the Hebrews were saved. That's not all the story Because they know if you tell that part of the story, you also have to tell about the Red Sea. You have to tell about stepping out. Out there where where they had never been before. Out to a place where they didn't know how to get across. They couldn't do it themselves. And suddenly the enemy came running down behind them. And it was God. It was God who parted the waters. And, you know, in reality, I don't know whether you're a fan of Cecil B. DeMille's. I kind of love that when the water comes up. And then, of course, it just folds right back. Um, I was very impressed with, and again, you never turn to the movies for, to inform your biblical knowledge, but you turn to, to representations to expand your imagination. What all was going on? How did they feel? What did they think? Uh, movie with Christian Bale in it called Gods and Kings and Gods, Gods and Kings, Exodus. This one's my favorite, though. Yes, it's animated, and you say, how childish. That simply means that you have not watched it and listened. You know what's missing in this? What's missing in this video? Say it out loud. Sound. There's a great... A documentary that you can get on Prime right now called Score. Uh, it is about the way musical scores are written and how they're composed and where they come from. You'll, be, you'll enjoy watching it if you enjoy music, but particularly if you enjoy music at the movies. Notice how the story doesn't have the same impact without the sound. The way... Uh, and again, I know that, that they misrepresent Moses holding the staff over the water. But, but I don't know what it must have felt like when the water started moving back. But in this animation, just the way it's depicted and, and particularly the sound brings it to life. Without the sound, it doesn't have the impact. And what I want to say to you is that the Jews hope is empty the same way a movie is empty without the score. The Jews' hope is empty without the reality of pointing back to, look what he has done. And we remember it every year when we celebrate. We retell the story of God's rescue. How without us lifting a single sword, spear, or bow... God wiped out the most powerful army in the world and left us free on the other side. Without fear of threat, this is really critical. If the army hadn't have been wiped out, the the people could have existed out there, maybe even made their way to the promised land, not failed at Kadesh the way that they did, but there would always be the threat of that Egyptian army coming to get us. 
God didn't just remove the immediate threat. God removed all threats for the next several generations. It's a story that filled them. We have a story that fills us. Amen? It's real. It's historical. It happened in a place. It happened by people to a person. And that story fills our trust and our hope for what is to come. And somebody say, Amen. Why don't you bow with me in prayer. Our Father and our God, we're thankful for this day. We're thankful for the way we can come together, as Wes said, freely and without fear to celebrate your love and to open your word and hear what it says. Let the Spirit speak to us. This morning, as we, as we look at the way hope was so powerfully founded in the people of Israel before Jesus ever came, may we get a sense that that same sense of hope and trust and faith can be built in our lives, become something real that happened, and the promise that the one who made that thing happen is will make everything that we hope for complete and true and full. Father, again, bless us as we open your word today. But more importantly, Father, bless us as we open our hearts to your word. We would ask that your spirit would come and speak to us. We pray this in the name of our hope, Jesus Christ. And we all say, immediately following the water washing back in, swallowing up the Egyptian army, saving God's people, Moses sings. Then Moses and the Israelites sang this song to the Lord. I will sing to the Lord for he is highly exalted. The horse and its rider he has hurled into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. He is my God and I will praise him. My father's guide and I will exalt him. The Lord is a warrior. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his army he has hurled into the sea. The best of Pharaoh's officers are drowned in the Red Sea. The deep waters have covered them. They sank to the depths like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord was majestic in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shattered the enemy. By the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. The surging waters stood firm like a wall. The deep waters congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy boasted, I will pursue, I will overtake, I will divide the spoils, I will gorge myself on them, I will draw my sword, and my hand will destroy them. But you blew out your breath. And the sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. Who among the gods is like you, O Lord? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glory, working wonders? In your unfailing love you will lead the people you have redeemed. In your strength you will guide them to your holy dwelling. You will bring them in and plant them on the mountain of your inheritance the place O lord you made for your dwelling the sanctuary O lord your hands established the lord the lord will reign forever and ever
There were so many days, so many days where there wasn't a home. There were so many days that they wandered in the wilderness. There were so many days, even, even after they came into the land, that they didn't realize all that God wanted for them. There were so many days and years and even centuries where they wallowed in their sin, but they still fought back to. And I don't think anybody ever forgot, particularly those who, while surrounded by the faithlessness of others, they themselves held to, cling to God, and did everything that they could do with their family and their influence to be about what God was about. There were those days when they, they couldn't see that the Lord would reign forever and ever, and yet they told that story. I don't know how far away it seemed on that day. It's kind of like the farmer who, who breaks the ground that's so dry that it literally becomes a powder and blows away. He puts the seed in, not because the, the ground at that moment looks like it's going to yield a harvest. He, he puts the seed in because God will send the rain. Are there any farmers here? God's going to send the rain. And I think those people in faithfulness and in hope said, if he did it then and he promised he would do it again, it is coming. The saddest part of all, of course, is that when Messiah came, so many were blinded. They knew the story of God's redemption, but they couldn't put together how God was going to come in a manger in Bethlehem. Come out of Galilee, where nothing good could come from, and be the light and be the redemption. But it was still this story that pointed them towards the hope. It was still this story that pointed them towards what Paul would talk about in that passage from Acts and that sermon before Felix and Agrippa and said, my people hope. They've just missed the one. But they won't stop hoping. Did you hear that phrase? Second or third phrase into it. It's the foundation of the faith of God's people. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. And wherever they were in their journey, whether they were wandering in the wilderness, whether they were being besieged by the, the Amalekites or the Philistines already in the Holy Land, or whether they were carried off to Babylon, they held to the idea that if we are going to be saved, it will be the Lord who saves us. Except there was no if. The Lord will save. And while Moses can say it pointing back at the Red Sea, pointing back at the Passover angel, pointing back at all the plagues that God brought upon Egypt to say, I am more powerful than any of your gods. Don't defy me. Pharaoh wouldn't listen. He never would. It sounds sort of familiar. At that moment, Moses' Moses's eyes are filled with the sense of God's salvation. But for the hundreds of years, and for the hundreds of years that wait before us, we say hope in Christ will be fulfilled. 
Because God keeps his promises. Somebody say amen. Part of the power of the song, part of the power of the song of what Moses sang isn't just the affirmation that God is, that Yahweh, Jehovah, is their salvation. But the power of the song also highlights, again, what the plagues were trying to say all along. Which, who among the gods is like you? In our 21st century minds, with the sense of all gods other than God, is other than Jehovah, are false gods, we don't talk this way. But this is the way of the people of the Old Testament. God was the greatest God. Your people may have a God, and He may do things for you, but there is no greater God than ours. There is no greater God than Jehovah. And that is why our hope is sure, is that He can overcome whatever gods might come in opposition to Him. And while in your life you may say, I have these things that beset me, I have these difficult thoughts, I have these sins that come up against me, I have these gods that oppose what Jehovah wants to do, we proclaim with Moses, there is no God like this God. As Craig pointed out in his communion talk, inspired by Anne's viewing of Facebook, God can do it. God can do it instantly. God can take that burden away. God can overcome. Jehovah God can overcome through Jesus Christ, anything that besets you. The story of Job is a very old one. There are thoughts that the writing of the book of Job may have actually taken place even before Moses started putting the Torah, the five books of law, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, may have even been written before Moses put pen to that. It's very ancient language. It is the story of a man who struggles with the fact that while living a righteous life, he is beset by great sorrow and trouble. That story unfolds with many layers. Accusations from friends, quote, friends who come to, quote, encourage him. And yet they continually go about the process of saying, no, 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 you don't understand. You had to have messed up to be in this situation. And he continually says, no. I have been faithful to my God, and yet I suffer. It's kind of an eternal question, isn't it? How do we work towards being the kind of people that God wants us to be, and yet we're still hit by struggles and difficulties? Whether they're physical ailments or spiritual attacks or relational struggles. Why? Oh, just and good God, would you leave me here like this? Job can make that claim above all others. Job is the one who can cry out and shake his fist at God and say, no, 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 this isn't right. And Job goes through a series of, of, I I think in a certain extent, a series of emotions of grieving about his suffering. He comes to the place where he just says, just take me. Can't we just get this over with? But eventually he comes to chapter 16 is the first hint of this and chapter 19 completes it. And he says, Oh, that my words were recorded, that they were written on a scroll, 
that they were inscribed with an iron tool on lead or engraved. And these are words that are, that, are, that are intended to say, I don't want anybody to forget this. I may forget my suffering someday. You may forget my suffering someday, but I don't want anybody to forget this. I know that my Redeemer lives. And in the end, He will stand upon the earth. He'll stand here with me. After my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see God. I myself will see Him with my own eyes. I am not another. And look at that last phrase. How my heart yearns within me. I want to tell you that if you read Job, you're going to discover that these words are said in anger. God, you've got to come here and you've got to stand beside me. Not as my accuser, but as the witness to my righteousness. Why aren't you here now? But it's the anger that is about lament and mourning. And by the way, it is the inspiration for the majority of the psalms that we read. The psalms that say, God, I'm in this trouble. I can't believe how much trouble I'm in. I can't, I, I can't see that you hear me. I can't know that you know my troubles. God, won't you come? I yearn for you to come and stand beside me. I yearn that you will be my salvation. Don't know what it was like to have been one of those Jews who through the ups and downs, through the times of, of glorious kingdom of David and Solomon to the great tragedies of the unfaithful kings, of Jehoiakim being carried off into exile and so many of the people with him, of the restoration of the people to Israel and the reconstruction of the temple, but the reflection that what is here now is so small and insignificant compared to what was. And yet they yearned. They spoke in their heart, I know that my Redeemer lives. They didn't know about the cross. They had no idea that the salvation wasn't going to be a, some small momentary geopolitical thing, but instead was going to be the salvation of the whole earth through the blood of Jesus Christ. For all that will turn to Him, wherever they may be, whatever their circumstance, whatever their trial, whatever their distance from the story of God, if they turn to Jesus the blood of Jesus in faith turned to the cross and the reality of the resurrection. He would redeem them like nothing. Job or Isaiah or Jeremiah or Joel could have imagined. They imagined it, but it was just the hem of the garment of what Jesus was. Can we have that kind of trust in God? It leads us to a hope that changes us. Three quick ways to think. First of all, we need to be a people 
who recognize the insufficiency of placing our hopes in the temporary and transitory things of this world. If you haven't lived long enough yet, you will. As soon as you start saying, I'm, I'm healthy and all is going well, something changes. Every time you put your hope in the idea, I have such a good job and I'm, I'm moving up in my career, something will change. Every time you put your hope in, oh, my children are growing up so wonderfully, something will change. Whatever you put your hopes in, in this temporary, transitory world, it'll fail you. And we need to recognize every day the insufficiency of putting any of our, and the way the New Testament says it, putting any of our treasures into the treasure box of this world. Because we want to put our faith in what is to come. Amen? Secondly, we need to be a people who affirm that God is the only one who holds eternity and ultimate victory in his hand. I realize those are kind of opposites of each other. We need to let go of holding on to this world and we need to, as Job said, I yearn, I yearn for you. Maybe that's why you came to church today. Maybe that's why you chose to sit in this audience. Maybe that's why you brought your children or your grandchildren to Bible class. I said, I, I, wanna, I want them to separate the difference between the things of this world and the things that God offers. I hope that in the songs we sang and maybe in some of the scriptures we read and some of the words that I said, it points you towards there is nothing to yearn for in this life. There is everything to yearn for in God's great eternity. Finally, We are called to follow Jesus in trusting God. I want you to understand that the resurrection was not a reality when Jesus walked to the cross. He had brought Jairus' daughter. He had brought the widow's son at Nain. And he had brought even Lazarus out of the tomb four days after he died. But what went on in the resurrection of Jesus, a body that came back to life never to die again, had never happened. Jesus goes to the garden that night and prays with such earnestness, may the cup pass, but, but I'm going to do what you've instructed me to do, and that's go to the cross. And Father, I'm going to the cross because I trust that you will be my redeemer and that I will live again. I don't know how that conversation went before God said, okay, it's time to go into Mary's womb. But don't worry. Have you ever told your children that? Don't worry, it'll be okay. I have a feeling this was a hard conversation. I have a feeling it was a hard conversation because the prayer in the garden was a hard conversation. But it didn't change the reality that the Son of God 
to trust the Father and lay his life into his hands. Say, I trust that if it's going to happen, it's going to happen because you bring me back. That's what we're called to, church. We're called to a faith that says, I will hope in what God says will happen, will become a reality the way what God has said in the past became a reality. We join God's people for centuries and millennia who say, I know my Redeemer lives and I will see him standing in this life. You're invited to come. You're invited to come not to, <laughs> not to great singing. Somebody say amen. <laughs> if it was Fellowship Sunday, I would tell you, you're not invited to come to good food because we have great food. Somebody say amen. <laughs> you're not invited to come to some of the best preaching you'll hear in the brotherhood anywhere. <laughs> you're invited to come to Jesus who walked the exact same path gave his life into God's hands and God did not fail him.